of Acts is the historic account of how the apostles received power from Jesus and then carried the truth of the gospel to the entire world. In its pages, Luke details God's brilliant and timeless strategy for re-establishing his kingdom in the world. It's quite simple. Jesus will supply power to his witnesses for telling people everywhere about him. going to shift from studying the 12 prophets I was sharing with my brother-in-law, who's also a Bible college graduate. He's like, man, you've been teaching through the minor prophets this summer. He's like, how are you doing with that? I'm like, it is, it's, it's heavy. Like you don't, those are not feel good stories. So we're shifting from the prophets. But if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, here's what our syllabus has been this year. We've studied the entire gospel of Mark and 12 of the books of the Old Testament. So if you stick around here for a while, uh, one thing you will get is a heavy dose of teaching on the Bible, okay? And so today we're going to start a study in Acts. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to just work through it for a while, okay? Um, we'll work through it till the end of November. We're going to take a break. We'll get through about the end of chapter 5 at that point. We're going to go uh, study some passages from Luke that have to do with the birth of Jesus. We've got a different uh, four-week study coming in January and then February. We'll hop back into Acts and keep on trucking. So there's everything in the Bible is useful or it wouldn't be in there. Says the Bible, right? All of the script, all scripture is useful. Um, so I'm actually, you know, you're like, Pastor, get to it. What I'm doing is editing the sermon down as I'm talking. Um, but to help me with that, as you know, I have the gift of taking something that can be explained in two minutes and doing it in 20. So instead of doing that this morning, we're going to go back to our friends at the Bible Project and I cut together. Don't think they're really good at what they do. I'm less good at video editing. I cut together two different videos to tie in the end of the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, and the beginning of the book of Acts, also written by Luke, to give you a quick overview of where we're headed over the next few weeks. So they're going to show you this video, and then we'll come back and study it for a few minutes. Let's check out the beginning of the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus and all of his disciples together over another meal. And everyone's freaking out about his resurrected body. I mean, he's still a human, but way more. Yes, he's passed through death and come out the other side, a walking, talking piece of new creation. And then Jesus tells them that he's going to give them the same divine power that sustained him so they can go out and share the good news of God's kingdom with other people. After this, Luke tells us that Jesus was taken up into heaven, which is a cool exit and all, but why disappear into the sky? So in the Old Testament, the skies are the place of God's throne. They're above everything. So this is Luke's way of showing that Jesus has been enthroned as the divine king of the whole world. His followers stay in Jerusalem, worshiping God and Jesus, waiting for this new power. And this is where the gospel ends. Now, Luke is going to write about how they receive this power and take the news out into the world. And that's what his second volume, the book of Acts, is all about. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a roadmap for the whole book of Acts. 
Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. So let's read the very beginning of the book of Acts. I'll read to you Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That's what we're going to study today. I won't be able to hit it all in depth, but hopefully I inspire you to dig in and study some more on your own. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this... He was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Uh, About two weeks ago on a Monday... I woke up to an absolute family crisis. Our coffee maker had died. I know. Seven years it made it. And uh, for some of you, this is not a crisis. I don't understand you. Yeah, some of you understand. There are certain things I can live without for a day, a week. I mean, how long can you go before you change your brakes, right? You just push that and push it and push it, but not coffee. So I had to make an unplanned purchase, which in my world is enough to throw me into a tailspin. Not because of financial mismanagement. I just don't like spending money unless I have to. But I had to because this is coffee, and I work with people who depend upon me having coffee in the morning. And uh, so my shopping process may be different from yours, I don't know. Um, When it comes to something like a coffee maker, this is not a purchase, this is an investment. And uh, this requires thought. And uh, uh, for me, it's a great amount of research, and I just didn't have time because I needed that coffee maker like tomorrow. I was willing to splurge and use a Dunkin' Donuts reward that I had to get me by. Um, But I had to get coffee. So here's what I do. Um, I go to this uh, godly forum called Amazon, and I don't know if you've discovered this, Amazon. I should disclose, in my retirement uh, portfolio, I do have some Amazon stock, and they're not paying me anything. I have enough to maybe own a paperclip on a desk of somebody somewhere. Um, But uh, I go on to Amazon, and here's what I like about Amazon. Um, I can type in their coffee maker. And it will show me like 2,347 different coffee makers. 
But I'm smart. I know that they have a reason for what order they put them in on my screen, right? They're incentivized for me to pick certain ones over other ones. But when you go on to Amazon to buy something, what I like is that I can decide in what order I want them displayed to a certain degree. Have you ever done this? You know you can filter the options. You can learn a lot about people by how they filter their options. Filter, coffee, we're working together, pun intended. Um, I didn't want to filter in mine, so that was what I was looking for. But I filtered by average customer review. That's me. Some of you go by lowest price first, right? Yeah, some of you are like, yes, Jesus is in the low prices, right? Somebody, yes, Moses and I right there. <laughs> some of you go by, if you're not careful, you'll get Amazon recommended first. And you might automatically think, well, if Amazon recommends them, that must automatically be the best coffee maker. Au contraire, bonjour, it may not be, right? That's as much French as I know. Um, you might be able to sort by, then some of them are like, ooh, this is near the top, and it's flashing, and it has a big font with bold letters, and it says sponsored in the square. That's because someone paid money to Amazon to put that picture there. But not me, I'm smarter than that. I want to dig deep into the customer reviews. I have this sickness about certain things. I really care about customer reviews. And they carry more weight to me than even the price or whether I can get it in one day or whether it was sponsored or recommended by Amazon. See, I don't trust the sponsor recommendations as much as I do a customer recommendation. I don't trust a commercial because they're paying that person to make me want to go wait in line for the Popeye's chicken sandwich, right? For me, there's just something that gets my attention about a customer review, whether it's good or it's bad. And in fact, the more good five-star reviews something gets, the more I'm willing to look into it. And I especially like to read the reviews. And my favorite review is one who says, I was skeptical. I've owned 37 coffee machines, and I was forced to get this one against my will. And it said it was going to do all these stuff. And I put it through the ringer, and my life was totally changed. Right? So I'm searching through, you know, there's a long story here. I won't bore you with it because I'll run out. You know, we'll be like, <laughs> we've had a great service. All we learned was Phil bought a new Keurig. But I finally found one that kind of, I mean, the reviews were fantastic. There were lots of the skeptical ones that won people over. And I sent it to Kendra. I said, what do you think? And I just sent her the link. And uh, it took her a while to get back to me. And she's like, I read all the reviews. You know, so she was into it. I don't know why. She and I, some things, we don't read any reviews. I don't know what it, what it is. I don't read, look, but for example, when we decide to go on vacation, I read reviews. When Chase and I, you know, travel together to go see a baseball stadium, we're trying to figure out where to stay and whatever and get the best deal, but we read reviews, lots of them. It's a powerful thing. You know what makes a review more powerful? When it's unsolicited objective from somebody you know. When it's like somebody you know that got the coffee machine, and you know they're really cheerful in the morning, and they cannot help but constantly tell you about the coffee machine, and every time you come over, they want to show you the machine, and even if it's 10 at night, they want to brew you a cup? Haven't you been talked into buying something, wearing something, eating something, watching some movie you never would have watched before until somebody just wouldn't shut up about how great it was? Some of us have made terrible fashion choices. Because someone convinced us, you really should try it. They're the most comfortable shoes ever. I mean, can you explain Crocs otherwise? 
Where am I going with all this? There's a lot more to say. Long before Amazon figured this out, Jesus knew a winning strategy is to get people who are sold on him to tell other people about it. The satisfied customer, if you will. In fact, his entire strategy for reaching the world hinges upon satisfied, transformed customers who are credible, simply telling other people about their experience. And after he dies on the cross and raises from the dead, Jesus' work is now finished and unfinished. He's finished redeeming us. Nothing more needed to be done. But now the telling other people about what he did needed to be done or all he did was die on the cross and redeem people and they'd never know about it. He has six weeks to get his replacements ready. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, the end of the Gospel of Luke, if we sat down his apostles at the beginning of that book, four days after Jesus dies on the cross, and we ask them to write a review about discipleship. How many stars would they give it? How credible and persuasive would they be in convincing other people that, hey, buy into this? At the time that, that, that Luke starts Acts, these are not five-star, enthusiastic, satisfied customers. They are weak. They are wobbly. They are shallow. They have major character flaws. They are not credible. They have a history of failures with the product. They are timid, they are weak, and they are hiding. They don't even publicly want their name to show up in the review column indicating that they own the Keurig 785B7 with frother. I don't know what the model number is, but it has a frother on it. Jesus has 40 days to take them from that to being the most powerful, persuasive, witnesses that the world has ever seen oh by the way he had already had three years with them died on the cross rose from the dead appeared to them and that didn't do it what is he going to do in 40 days that the previous three years didn't accomplish that's our text for today well pastor why should i listen because jesus is wants to do the very same thing with you His work is unfinished. You and I are his plan to finish it. And the only way we'll ever get there is if he can take us from whatever kind of weakness, wobbliness, shallowness, timidness, hiding out Christianity that we have and transform us into powerful, strong, confident, credible witnesses. Only shot he's got is us. And if you ever find yourself a little bit weak, a little bit wobbly, a little bit timid, a little bit scared of social consequences, a little bit biblically illiterate, a little bit uh, worried about your character flaws, a little bit timid, a little bit shy, a little bit bashful, this 40-day master class is for you. What did Jesus do in the 40 days? That's the only question I can answer this morning. But it's beautiful. Amazon has a plan, right? VRBO, HomeAway, they have a plan. 
That's marketing. Jesus wasn't into marketing, but he has a big plan. We're going to see it all through Acts. Here it is. It's in your notes. The big plan. Big plan is that Jesus will supply power to each of his witnesses. I've been using the word customer, not a great word. I'm going to use Jesus' word, which is witnesses. Jesus will supply power to each of his witnesses for telling people everywhere about the good news of God's kingdom, period. Let me just put it out there. I'm sure there's more clever, tweetable ways we could say this, but I'm less concerned about tweetable. I'm more concerned about being accurate. Here is the summary of everything that happens in the New Testament after Jesus raises from the dead. It's all about how Jesus continued to be in charge, only he switched the headquarters from earth to heaven, and he continues to this day to work his master plan. And his master plan is supply power to each of his witnesses. How? To make you better? No, to help you tell other people about the good news of God's kingdom. It is, he's put all his eggs in that basket. And somehow, some way, after three years, he gotten that, hadn't gotten that far with the disciples, but somewhere between resurrection and ascension, he now has to stand before them and say, don't you dare leave Jerusalem and start witnessing yet. When would he ever have to say that to his apostles? He never had to tell them to slow down and stop it. He had, he had to literally appear to them behind locked doors because they were terrified of being associated with him. And 40 days later, he's saying, hey, listen, don't go start witnessing yet. You're not ready. <laughs> At first, first, he's saying, it's time to get ready. And they say, we don't want to go. 40 days later, they're saying, we want to go. And he goes, not yet. What happened? I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you. Luke shows it to us. That's a big plan. One vocabulary word. I was going to give you two. We'll hold off on the other one. Uh, I was going to tell you about witness and power. Power will hold off on. All you need to know is it's from the Greek word dunamis, for which we get the word dynamite. Now, my my seven-year-old gets excited. We were talking about this. He goes, God wants to give me dynamite? No, 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 no. Now, my seven-year-old would be terrified. My two-year-old would take that stick, light it, and find what he could blow up. They're very different. Same DNA, but I don't know. I don't get it. Anyway, witness is the word I want to give you. Where do, in what, uh, in what room of what building do you think about when I say, do you know what a witness is? What do you think about? Courtroom. Yeah. And it's pretty much the same thing. A witness is simply someone who has seen something and then is asked to tell other people about what they saw. That's all. They're asked questions like, what did you see? What did you hear? How did you feel? Those are the questions they draw out of witnesses. That's the specific word Jesus attaches to his apostles. And that's a specific word that we can carry through today. And so you know what makes the good news spread and transform lives? It comes through the carrier who is a witness. They had a first person, undeniable experience with in our case, with Jesus Christ. They saw something and heard something and felt something. You'll read through the New Testament. We, we are witnesses to what we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, and touched with our hands. And isn't it interesting, in these first couple verses in the end of John and the end of Luke, they touched his wounds. He taught them and gave them instruction with his voice. He ate with them. Ghosts don't eat. They could smell the food that he cooked. They saw with their eyes. 
They touched with their hands. They heard with their ears. They even tasted. Because if you're going to be a witness, you better have your story straight. You better know what the message is. They're not going to put, you're not going to put a witness on the stand who doesn't have their act together. It's going to unravel pretty quick. Witness is someone who sees something and is asked to tell other people about it. And Acts will ask you over and over again, and I'll come back to this later at the end, which we're almost at. Acts will ask you this over and over again, and we'll ask you over and over again. And as you're studying Acts with me, I want you to ask this question. I want you to be able to answer it at some point, if you can't already. Have you witnessed Jesus for yourself? Have you had an experience where you say, you know what? I've seen, I've touched, I've heard, I've felt. If you haven't, those questions are already going to trip you up. If you have... You know what I mean when I'm asking those questions. I'm not talking about like you sit down with your granddad and you say, well, Grandpa, what car do you think I should buy? He says, well, back 30 years ago, I had a Chevy, best car I ever had. I'm not interested in the, well, I guess from an investment standpoint, if you had the 30-year-old Chevy and it was in mint condition, I might be interested. That doesn't make me want to rush down to the Chevy dealer and buy one, the coffee machine or the Chevy you had 30 years ago. It's not a powerful witness to say, yeah, back in the day, I had an experience with Jesus once. Are you experiencing him? Are you witnessing him today? Had a story? Don't have time. Let's keep going. Skip that, skip that. Let me, just, let me just answer one question. What was Jesus doing for that 40 days? What took them from hiding, weak, wobbly, character flawed, hiding out, timid disciples into bold, powerful Biblically solid, unafraid, public, attractive, convincing witnesses to Jesus. We don't get a whole lot of information, but we get enough. We see a couple things. Verse 2, what's it say? What was he doing in verse 2? He was giving them what? Further instruction. Further instruction means there was already some instruction given them. Do you know what that was? You might have to go back to the end of Luke. What instruction had he already given them that Luke doesn't reiterate here, basically? It was great. It was a great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that before? If you've been to church probably more than once you have. He gives them further instruction. He is speaking to them and he's giving them line by line, step by step instruction. Now, wouldn't you like to have the manual that he gave them for that? Whether we have it or not, Luke, suffice it to say, he's pretty clear that Jesus gave them instruction. But the instruction by itself probably wasn't what took them from that moment to the next. Because hadn't he given them lots of other instructions over the previous three years? Yes? No? How effective was that? If it was supposed to result in them going confidently around telling people about Jesus, I would say it was a big failure. And you're saying, well, what really changed them? It was the crucifixion. Oh, I don't have time to unpack it. Okay, one statement. Um, It wasn't that the crucifixion did not change them. 
but the crucifixion didn't immediately change them because they didn't understand it. The crucifixion resulted in them running and hiding and going back to their old jobs. Until this master class of 40 days comes along. Where Jesus, I'm getting ahead of myself, where Jesus explains to them from the Bible what it was. And when they got a full understanding that the Bible they had been studying for all of their life was actually true and had just happened in front of them, all of a sudden a power came inside of them that transformed them. And now the crucifixion impacted them, even though they saw it. They saw his resurrected body. That did not immediately. You people say, if Jesus would come back today and appear to us, it would change people. Not in and of itself, it wouldn't. It didn't change it for them. It was coupling their experience with the truth of the scripture with a side of power, putting that whole thing together that turned them into credible, motivated, firsthand experienced, powerful witnesses. It was all those things working together. So he gave them further instruction. Number two, he made appearances from time to time. Verse three, I'm going to say that again and see if you get this. Luke is very, he's dropping an Easter egg here that should blow your mind. How did Jesus conduct, oh, I've got to be better with my words today. I don't have time. Um, In the previous three years, Jesus is with them 24-7, except when he separates himself to pray every now and again. Through this 40 days, better way, previous three years, he's with them full time. In this 40 days, he's with them part time. Do you know how he enters and exits his time with them? He appears, original Greek word, to physically appear. This is a new entrance for Jesus. When he wants to teach, instruct, eat, he simply appears from nowhere, appears. And when he's done, he disappears. I would love to know where he went in the time he was not with them. Like, what did he do? Was he going back and forth between heaven and earth? Well, then that's kind of duping us when he ascends to heaven. Like, well, he's already been there. That's not it. Did he go somewhere else? Did he go to other parts of the world? I have to be, and you know what, I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole because there have been entire world religions that exist today that have decided to seize upon this vacuum of not knowing where Jesus was and invent secret lessons that he taught during this time and build a whole religion out of it. So I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But it was, I just want to show you something. The relationship was changing. He was training his replacements. He was teaching them, I'm not going to be with you 24-7. So he came to them in interim periods of time. He taught them, number three, he was... He thoroughly proved his resurrection. This is the one thing I have to drive home to you today. I have to drive this home. There's a part in the text here that says the most important thing he did during that time was that he gave them every imaginable proof that his resurrection actually happened. He gave them every intellectual proof. He gave them every theological proof. He gave them every physical proof. We know he ate in front of them. Ghosts can't do that. He gave them every possible, for 40 days, can you imagine the questions they brought into that? We know they were skeptical already, don't they? Thomas didn't believe. Interesting side note, who didn't Thomas believe? He didn't believe the report of the apostles. It wasn't that he didn't believe Jesus. He hadn't seen Jesus yet. He missed Jesus every time he showed up. And the apostles kept saying, he's back. He's like, I don't believe you. He's back. I don't believe you. Do you believe us? Do you trust us? We've seen him. I won't believe you. He was doubting the apostles' report of Jesus. It still happens today. How many times do people go into the Gospels, read the story, and say, I don't believe it. I don't trust the apostles. Right? 
If you're going to get anywhere with Jesus, you've got to go into this book and say, you know what, I'm at least going to investigate this thing. They brought their skepticism to their 40-day master class and are like, listen, I don't believe this coffee maker is going to change my life, but you know what? I'm going to give it a go. I can return it after 30 days if I don't like it. But I'm going to bring this home, and by God, I'm going through every function on this thing and see if it really is what they say that it is. Some of you have never even taken your faith that far. You've rented it. You don't own it. You've not had an experience for yourself. You've not taken Jesus up on his invitation and say, you know what? Bring your tough questions. Come on. Bring your tough questions. I invite them. I can handle them. My word stands on its own. Test it. In fact, I I want you to test it. Dig into it. Think about it. Press every button. Go through the whole manual. But what does he do? He spends every possible moment that he has with them, giving them every type of proof. They got the royal treatment that none of us will ever have. We will never have that 40-day master class with Jesus. But here's what was happening. He was painstakingly going through the scriptures that they never understood before. They had read them, but constantly misinterpreted them. And he's starting in Psalms, and he's going through Isaiah, and he's going through Ezekiel, and he's going through uh, Amos, and he's going through Zechariah, the stuff we just studied. And he's going through all of them, and he's starting to say, do you remember where the prophet said this? Yes, yes, Rabbi. Now go back four days, and they're like, I mean, literally, less than six weeks later, Peter stands up and preaches the finest sermon ever recorded in Scripture, and it is loaded with Scripture verses that he finally understood, and it was those things. When you get to the place where you are convinced that the Bible is true, it will transform your life. Like nothing else ever can. Like no experience by itself ever will. You have to see this. At the end of six weeks, it wasn't that Jesus started doing more miracles. They had seen so many miracles over three years. It wasn't one more miracle that tipped the scale for them. It wasn't one more lesson. In fact, people get so hung up on what Jesus taught and not enough about what he actually did. That he died and that he rose from the dead. And Jesus is saying, you have to understand, if you don't get it, that the resurrection is the fulfillment of everything in the Bible... You can't move forward from this point. But once that light bulb goes off in your mind, it is a transforming thing. What a testimony to the power of the Bible. Their Bible at that time was simply the Old Testament and the prophets. And once they were able to pair their experience with the word of God, it set them on fire to the point where Jesus had to say, hold up, I know you want to charge hell with a water pistol, but you're not ready yet. And you and I are thinking, that's crazy, man. Jesus would be a terrible sales manager. You've got, you've got an employee who is motivated, they're passionate, they've experienced the product, they've read the manual, they can quote it inside and out, they can demonstrate the product, they're enthusiastic, they've got experience, they've got motivation, but he says you're missing something. And if you try and go out with this, you might make a go of it for a week a month, maybe even a couple years. But you won't make it to the finish line. When have you ever known Jesus to tell a rabid evangelist to not go evangelize? Why would he do that? 
That sounds so anti-Jesus. But there's a lesson there for us. Power has to accompany the truth. We can't take on, Cheryl had a word this morning, says, I don't know where this fits, but I feel like God's telling me from 2 Timothy 3 to not become the type of people that take on a form of godliness but deny the power. I said I know exactly where to put that in this morning's service. Now, why would God do that? Because he wants to bold face these last two minutes I have with you to say this. If Jesus told his own apostles, really, these apostles who he was handing a baton to with the spread of Christianity completely falling on their shoulders, if he's telling them to wait when they were finally ready to go, must have been for a good reason. He says, I'm going to give you a gift. And they think they know what the gift is because they had been studying the Old Testament the last few days. They finally understood that the king that they were waiting for to come was here. And in the prophets, once the king comes, the next thing that happens is now Israel gets its own kingdom. And they're, you know, and, and they're not going to be under any rule anymore. They were currently under the Roman rule. They were set free. And they were, all those prophecies were going to come true too. So they say, Jesus, now that, you, now that we know you're the Messiah, you're the king, you've done everything. The next thing that happens in the, in the line of prophecy is that we're going to be restored. Is it time for that? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? And sometimes we read that, we think, oh, those idiots. They, they missed it again. They're still hung up on the kingdom. They really, they weren't idiots. They had the, the order right, but the timing wrong. He's, and, he, and the way Jesus answers them is so beautiful. He doesn't smash them to pieces for asking a dumb question. He just says, you know, and here's the reality of Christianity. Here's what he basically says. There's something you don't know and you can't know, and I'm not going to tell you, but there's an answer, and I know it, and that's good enough. (laughs) How many of you are staying up late at night trying to get an answer to something you don't know, you can't know, he ain't going to tell you, but there is an answer, and that's going to have to be good enough. Here's what he says. I'm not going to tell you. Only the Father knows that. But what he says is, it's coming, and I've promised you that, and I'm going to do all that. But you will receive power. After that, you'll be my witnesses and you'll go everywhere starting locally going nationally going to the people you hate that race of people you hate and all around the world telling people about the good news of what i've done and why i did it and repentance and salvation so he tells them he says you wait for that power We'll talk about that more over the next couple weeks. He talked to them about the kingdom of God and the spirit of God, it says. Don't have time to go into that. He ate with them. Don't have time to go into that, but I do have time to ask you three questions, right? (laughs) I'll close with this illustration. Worship team, come on back. Come on back. So some of you know that in my uh, decades ago, I was a car salesman. I say that with as much trepidation as I was a car salesman because it was the only job at the time that I could get. And I looked for nine months. I was a car salesman. I was about as excited about that as having to have my wisdom teeth taken out a second time. I didn't want to do it. I wasn't good at it. My first month there, I sold a grand total of zero cars. I didn't want to be the salesman kind of person. I didn't want to be the person I didn't, I didn't want to be the person that I didn't want to run into when I had to go buy a car. But I was really fascinated. I was selling Mazdas, new Mazdas and General Motors cars. 
I was fascinated by the Mazda because my desk was on that side of the showroom. You know what I did during that first month of no sales and my downtime of no customers? I read everything that I could get my hands on about the Mazda. I was the only one in the dealership who cared about knowing about the car. The rest of them just knew how to sell stuff. I learned everything I could. I was fascinated by just the way they painted the car and they ionized the paint and they reverse ionized the car and how many times they did it. I studied, I was like, well, why did they change the headlights in the CX-9 this year and what is it about this type of headlight? And so I started digging around. I had a lot of time. I had no customers. I learned everything that I could. My, my sales managers were about to give up on me. They're finally like, well, why don't you just help yourself to the keys and go, I spent eight hours a day test driving these cars. I learned every button in every one of those cars and every trim line until I could master them. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I couldn't sell the car to anybody, but man, did I love them. I knew everything about them that I possibly could. I mean, customers would come up and they'd be like, I, you know, before I'd even say anything, I don't want to buy a car today. I'm like, that's such a relief. I don't want to sell one. Can we just talk about them? You don't want to sell one? I was like, if you promise not to try and buy it, I promise not to try and sell it. I'm like, well, I do have an hour to kill. Great. Let's talk power windows. You know, like, let me show you why these power windows, then I'm taking apart the paint line. I could talk all, big surprise, I could talk all day about a Mazda. Somewhere along the line, I started figuring out that there's a type of customer who that type of presentation disarms them and makes them really feel like this really is the best car for me. And there's a fine line between manipulation and you know, anytime you get into salesmanship, motives are always questioned. And yes, I was getting paid for it. But the reality was, you know, what I, I had genuine enthusiasm for that product. My test drives were the best. I took people out. You know, I'd get going to 40 miles an hour, and I'd hammer on that brake. Ah! And they'd be like, and I was like, did you notice the ABS brakes kicking in right there and the anti-skid protection? And now they're terrified. They'll sign anything at that point. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, like, we didn't test the airbags. I wanted to do that, and the manager told me that their liability didn't. I'm telling you, and I started to get good at selling cars. Now, the way that I sold them, I didn't, um, you know, I, I also usually cut to our bottom line pretty quick, so I wasn't making the company a whole lot of money on one car, but I would sell 15 or 20 a month. And I was so passionate, and I was so enthusiastic about the product. I knew everything that you could know about that car as a salesman. I knew the numbers. I knew the... I knew that, I mean, I had test drive, I had experienced the driving excitement of Mazda. But there was one question that when I was asked it, it would derail me every time. That got me a lot of sales. But there was one question that I could never overcome. So what car do you drive? Oh, I drive that Honda down there. Why don't you drive a Mazda? Uh, well, you see, I... I Finance that for 60 months. I'm only on the 24th month. And right now, you know, the, I'm a little bit upside down on its value. And it really doesn't make financial sense. And sometimes it's just like, oh, you can talk about it. You talk a good talk, but you don't own it. My question to you is, do you own your faith? Or do you just at times talk a good talk? You know a couple of the benefits. You can push a couple of the buttons. What are you missing? Jesus wasn't concerned about sending people out there who had read a few manuals, had a good experience there. He said, without power, without really owning this, you won't get to the finish line. The three questions that Acts begs us to ask of ourselves, we'll look at these regularly over the next couple of weeks. 
Have you witnessed Jesus for yourself? Number two, have you experienced the proof of Jesus's power operating in you? I asked somebody this week, do you think you're a powerful person? And I said, you know what? I I don't know how to answer that. What if I told you, if you follow through this book, I could ask you that question, do you think you're a powerful person? And you could answer unquestionably. Because Jesus said, wait for my power. I'm going to send it to you. You know what they didn't say? Well, how will we know when you send it? If they asked him that question, here's what he said. Oh, you'll just know. Well, how long will we wait? A week? A month? Until I send it. Jesus, you're talking in riddles again. We thought we had just broken through that barrier. How will we know? Oh, I've imagined something. That will indicate to you when you've got the power. Well, what do we do next? You'll just know. Because if people would have spelled out to them what they were waiting for, that would have probably messed the whole thing up. He said, oh, I I have a way of letting you know undoubtedly you've received a power that is not yours. And once I've sent that to you and you've received it, the rest of your lifetime will will just you be figuring out how do I harness this thing and get it out of my life in every way that I can. Do you, have, do you know that you've experienced the proof of the power of Jesus, not just living in you, but operating through the way that you live? And the third question, are you an active participant in the mission of telling people everywhere about the good news of God's kingdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We recognize your power and your presence here among us today. You've spoken to us as we worshiped. You've spoken to us through communion. You move powerfully in a time of prayer and worship. We feel your presence coming alive as we study your word today. But God, we're confronted with that, that very first question of have I truly witnessed your son, Jesus Christ? Have I had a firsthand experience, not a borrowed experience, not an understanding of doctrine? Have I had a firsthand experience with you? And the answer is either yes or no. If I'm not sure, it's in that no category. Jesus, we know it begins with a transforming power of forgiveness and redemption. Echo, if you're here today and you know that you've not experienced Jesus for yourself, and you're ready to draw near to him, it begins with surrender, it begins with salvation, it begins with forgiveness, and if you're ready for that, and you're ready to A, admit, B, believe, C, choose, admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the savior of the world, he's the son of God, he lived a sinless life, he died the death you deserved, he was raised from the dead, he's alive today, if you can believe that and confess that to him today, and if you're ready to C, choose, if you are ready to choose to surrender control of your life to him, This is your step today to pray this prayer. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I confess all of my faults to you, all of my sins, all the choices I've made, and I own them. I need forgiveness. I also confess my belief in you, Jesus. I believe in you. I trust you. I've heard the truth about who you are and what you've done, and I recognize how it's transforming me right now. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I accept forgiveness. I accept your grace. 
I accept mercy, and I invite you to come and live inside of me and bring all of you with you. Bring all of your power, all of your strength, all of your love, all of your boldness, all of your confidence. Bring it all with you. And I will surrender control of my life to you today. Heavenly Father, as your church, we recognize that there's still a work for us to be involved in. And I pray that as we open Acts together, as we begin to pursue you through this book of the New Testament, that it will be a spiritual rebirth and renaissance in the hearts of Echo Community Church. I pray even right now that those that people will receive, who have never received it, will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit this week as they seek you in their homes. Lord, that, that as we go through Acts together, that we could say 100% of our church family can answer the question, I have had an experience with Jesus. I have witnessed him for myself. And I see the power of God working in my life through his Holy Spirit. And I am an active participant in the ongoing mission to reach the world. Because if we can say that, and that's a church you can smile over and trust us with more sheep. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.